morning as we're continuing through the, gospel, or the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church of Rome. Uh, we are in Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. You can find that text, of course, in your worship folder if you wish to follow along. This is God's word. Let us give it careful attention. Paul writes, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let the one who eats despise, or let the one, not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while the other esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whatever, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give account of himself to God. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would continue to speak to us this morning through its truth, that your spirit would move upon our hearts. Where faith is lacking, that you would grant it. Where faith is weak, that you would build it up and strengthen it. Father, convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged and help us to see the glory of Christ our Lord and Savior through the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you browse through church websites or other promotional media, you'll notice that one thing which every church claims to be, whether they are liberal or conservative, whether they are evangelical or confessional, traditional or seeker-driven, what they all claim to be is that they all claim to be a welcoming church. Now, some base that claim on their perception of how they warm or friendly or winsome they believe themselves to be. Others claim to be welcoming because they say they are open and affirming, meaning they've capitulated to the moral standards of the culture rather than the unchanging, unfailing word of God. But across the board, any church would claim to be a welcoming church. It's good PR. And yet, if you pull back the 
facade of all the websites and the promotional materials and the, the smiling faces and the coffee bars, what might you really find? What makes a church welcoming? Well, it's certainly a question worth asking, especially we here at Christ Church Ann Arbor as we begin a new season of ministry in a new neighborhood. What makes us welcoming? How can we be a welcoming church? You see, beneath the, the, the veneer of the surface, and we know this, you find that even in the most doctrinally and biblically faithful churches who confess the gospel and the truth and the authority of God's word, even in those churches, you will find stains and scratches and flaws. But that's okay. Because a truly welcoming church is not a perfect church. A truly welcoming a church is a place where sinners come to be sanctified. It's a covenant community brought together by the grace of God and for the glory of God where people are made new. It's a place where real peace is present. God reveals to us here in this text this morning through his servant, the Apostle Paul, that because God has graciously welcomed us into his family, we are his people, must graciously welcome each other, and so enjoy the peace of Christ. Now to see that, we first have to take a look at the problem and consider it. We need to answer the question, what causes many of the conflicts in churches, even good churches, great churches, now, we recognize that there are actually necessary conflicts and controversies which do arise in the church. Matters of truth and doctrine and the gospel and God's divine moral standard, they are all matters that require clarity and conviction and must be carefully guarded and upheld. There are non-negotiables of the gospel that if ignored or removed or modified in any way, render a church powerless and missing that historic faith delivered to God's people. The church in the Bible is called a pillar or a fortress of, of the truth, which means we are to faithfully defend the grace of the gospel against all errors and enemies. We are called to give an answer for the hope that we have in Jesus. We're not to welcome or tolerate sin, but to call all people alike, no matter who they are, to repentance and faith in Jesus, resting upon him alone for the forgiveness of sins. And we see in the New Testament that early on, the church was attacked by legalism, Gnosticism, other errors. And Paul and the other apostles vigorously defended those who seek or who sought to undermine the or uh, against those who sought to undermine the the reality of sin and the need for salvation by grace alone. And of course, even in the early church, there were controversies that arose because there were many who sought to corrupt the truth regarding the triune nature of God and the humanity or deity of Jesus Christ. 
and the Reformation itself was a conflict over the authority of Scripture alone as it revealed that a person is made right with God, not by anything that they do, but purely by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And Jesus himself said that he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is a posture of advance. We are taking the gospel to the world. And as the church advances with the truth of the gospel, it's going to generate conflict with the kingdoms of this world. We are proclaiming that there is one true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself is portrayed in Revelation as riding on a white horse with the armies of heaven, that is his church, advancing, following behind him in victory. So the church then is in the midst of a struggle with the world because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. She does not wage her warfare with swords or guns or bombs, but with the word of God. That is a conflict. A necessary conflict. But that isn't what Paul is speaking of here. He addresses another area of conflict. He's speaking of unnecessary conflicts. And we see that right away in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Quarrels over opinions are conflicts that are not supposed to exist in the church. They are the antithesis of being a welcoming church. And Paul addresses this because while there was no apparent doctrinal issue at stake in the Roman church, as there was in other churches to which Paul wrote and had to address, there were clear areas where the peace of the church there in Rome was being compromised by personal opinions and preferences. Many times in those churches that are faithful to the gospel, the conflicts come most often over matters of preference, not matters of the gospel or doctrine or moral or ethical issues, but opinions, how we think about certain things. Other English translations of the Bible describe these quarrels over conflicts as uh, disputes over doubtful things, things that are uncertain, things that are, are debatable matters, differences with little importance. So what was driving the strife in the Roman church? Well, Paul explains there was this conflict between two groups, and he, he labels them as those who are weak in the faith and those who are strong. The weak in the faith, says Paul, are those who believe that certain restrictions and observances are necessary to be a better Christian. These restrictions are not of moral or ethical importance in accordance with the Bible, but they are elevated to that level by those who insist upon them. Some of them had to do with eating. So verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Those who were weaker in faith insisted that only vegetables were to be eaten by Christians rather than delicious meat. Paul gives us no reason why there were those in the Roman church that thought this. 
as he does when he addresses this matter in other epistles, especially 1 Corinthians. There in the Corinthian church, we're told that there were some who objected to eating meat that was offered up to idols, not given any reason. And the situation may have been the same here in Rome as it was in Corinth. We don't know. But his point is that the weak are weak in faith because they don't yet understand the liberty of the gospel. They did not grasp the clear teaching of the Bible that animals are lawful for consumption. God has given in his good providence things to enjoy. And to the pure, all things are pure. You can enjoy your bacon and eggs. the strong in faith there in Rome, they understood this. They enjoyed the freedom God had given them in Christ. They enjoyed his providence to them as they ate meat. These ascetic restrictions of those who Paul says were weak in the faith also came by the way of insisting upon the celebration of certain days. So in the Roman church, there was probably a Jewish minority, and they persisted in the continued observance of ceremonial feast days or holidays within the ceremonial law of God. Now, these did not include the Sabbath, or as we call it, the Lord's Day, and that's because the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is part of God's moral laws contained in the Ten Commandments, as well as it's grounded in his natural law, for God rested on the seventh day. The idea of a day of rest, that it belongs to the Lord, is established and rooted in the creation of this world. But these ceremonial days, these special days, were in the ceremonial law of God uh, for the people of Israel to follow. And the people who were weak in faith in Rome, thought that those ceremonial days were still in place, that we were required to observe them. And what they failed to see is that they were meant, these days were meant to point to Christ as a way of preparing the people to know him. You see, Jesus had already come in the flesh. He had lived, he had died, he had risen again. He had ascended. And so these days that were meant to proclaim there is a coming Messiah, there is one who will be the deliverer of his people, who will forgive them of their sins, these days they're already fulfilled in Jesus. And insistence upon keeping them showed a weak faith. It showed that a person did not fully understand yet the ramifications of the new covenant life in Jesus and yet those who were strong in faith, Paul says, did understand this. They understood that the only holy day for Christians is to celebrate the Lord's Day. We don't see in the Bible anywhere a church calendar required of believers to follow other than the worship of the Lord on the day of his resurrection, the seventh day of the week. I mean, not even Christmas and Easter are required to be observed by Christians, because in Christ we are free from the obligations of men. The weak in faith, though, didn't have a mature faith. 
They didn't understand what these days, what these laws were all about. They did not realize the full freedom of God's grace. But they certainly thought that they did. So much so that in the Roman church, what they were doing was condemning their brothers and sisters who enjoyed eating meat and did not observe these special ceremonial days. But there are two sides to every conflict, aren't they? So you had the weak in faith passing this legalistic judgment upon the strong, but you also had the strong in faith despising the weak. They were treating them with scornful contempt. While the strong certainly had a better knowledge of all that the gospel entailed when it came to Christian liberty, knowledge, unless it is clothed in the humility and grace of God, tends to puff a person up. And so from a haughty perch, the strong in faith were looking down upon those who were weak in faith. In other words, it wasn't a very welcoming church. And that's the situation Paul is addressing here in Rome. They were squabbling over petty differences, doubtful things. Now, while we don't have issues today necessarily about the eating of meat or observance of special days, churches today are still made up of the same people those who are weak in their faith, maybe new in their faith, and those who are strong in their faith, mature in their faith. And that is a beautiful thing because that amplifies the grace of the gospel. However, we, just like the church in Rome, are tempted to either judge others based on our preferences or hold them in contempt because they don't yet realize the full freedom of the gospel. An obvious example of that, of course, is the use of alcohol. Wine and other alcoholic beverages are not condemned in the scriptures. In fact, at times the use of them is actually encouraged or presented as a joyful providence of God. But drunkenness, the abuse of those things, is always a sin, and it is always condemned and judged by God. And yet some Christians will say that a Christian is a better Christian if if he or she never has a glass of wine with dinner. But since wine is not forbidden, then that view comes from a weakness of faith. And to level such a condemnation against a brother or sister for enjoying wine with their meal is not a source of strength or a sign of strength, but of weakness. However, for those who do have a glass of wine with their dinner, to look down upon those who do not, to despise them where they are in their faith, is also a shameful thing. It may be that because of someone's past, it would be unwise to partake because they did struggle with the sin of drunkenness. In other words, the point that Paul is getting at here is that both the strong and the weak produce this conflict. One in judging the other and the other in despising 
their brothers and sisters. But instead, he calls us to be welcoming, welcoming to one another in the church and thus promoting not conflict, not strife, but peace. And so how do you do that? Well, first, he says, we welcome each other because we know we've been welcomed by God. So verse 3, let not the one who despises, or not let the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Paul is addressing those here with a strong faith, saying, welcome the weak because God has welcomed those weak into his people. God has accepted them. Even though they are weak and they have their doubts and they struggle in their faith, God has welcomed them into his family, into his kingdom, into the fellowship of his presence. And so you are not to exclude them from the church. You are not to despise them by showing contempt. With the grace that God has welcomed you to himself, so welcome them. For he has shown the weak the same grace as he has shown the strong. A bruised reed Christ will not break, nor a smoldering wick will he extinguish. And so when we come to Christ, it is often with much baggage of our past. And when we enter into his church and join his body, we will all bring those weaknesses with us and struggles that plague us. In fact, Richard Sibbs once said that Christ's sheep are weak sheep and lacking in something or other. He therefore applies himself to the necessities of every sheep. And so we welcome one another. The strong must welcome the weak with the tenderness and the gentleness of Christ. In fact, those who are strong in faith are often the very means that God uses to encourage growth in those who are weak and to strengthen them and to a better understanding of the gospel. The strong in faith must graciously welcome the weak in faith because God has graciously welcomed them. However, the same is true in reverse. Because God has graciously received the weak despite their weakness in faith, despite their doubts and struggles, the weak must welcome the strong. And so Paul exhorts those who are weak in verse 4. And just like his exhortation to the strong, it is rooted in this welcoming grace of God reflected in the gospel. Who are you, he says to the weak, to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Because God has welcomed those who are strong in faith, who are you that are weak in faith to judge them? Since the weak tend to regard the exercise of, of Christian liberty as a falling away or a, a lack of devotion to Christ, Paul directs their attention to the truth that God is their master. And he is the one that determines according to his sovereign prerogative and grace who stands before him. And he is mighty, says Paul. He will uphold the strong in faith and make them to stand before him by the power of his grace alone. So the weak ought to welcome the strong for their liberty in life preaches the grace of the gospel to them. 
God saves not on the basis of observing certain days or eating certain food, but based purely on his powerful and sovereign grace. And since then, we all, whether weak or strong in faith, are welcomed graciously by God. Paul says, graciously welcome one another. Secondly, he says, we welcome each other because we serve the same Lord. Now, he's already said that we stand before God as our loving master, and he develops that idea further in verses 5 through 9. And here, the overarching theme that you see is that of service. Based on the fact that both the weak and the strong desire to serve Christ as Lord, Paul pleads with them to be accepting of one another despite their doubtful differences with each other. Three times we see that idea of honoring the Lord mentioned here. It has to do with whatever you do, whether you eat or don't eat, whatever you do, do it for the Lord. It's an act of service to him, to the praise of his name. The one who observes certain days does so in devotion to the Lord, says Paul. The one who does not observe certain days celebrates their freedom in Christ for the glory of their Lord. The one who does eat meat eats in praise to God, giving thanks to him for his gracious gifts. And the one who abstains from eating does so also, giving thanksgiving to God, showing devotion to him. In fact, the very idea of thanksgiving itself implies an awareness of faith because it recognizes that God is gracious and provides for his people. And it is that provision of God that unites both the strong and the weak together as one. Remember back to Romans chapter 1 where Paul explains the corruption of sin and how it has come into this world. And what does Paul say is at the very heart of humanity's sinful depravity. He says in Romans 1.21, for all they, that is humanity, knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Failure to give thanks to God and to honor him for who he is as our creator and sustainer and giver of life. That is at the center of humanity's sinful rebellion against God. But redemption changes that. In Christ, we're given a new heart. Our minds are renewed. And we seek then to honor and to glorify him, to give thanksgiving to him. God's salvation makes us desirous of honoring the Lord, and that is true for those that have weak faith and those that have strong faith. We honor and serve the same Lord. After all, Paul says, your life belongs to the Lord if you're Christ's. Verses 7 through 9, none of us lives to himself, he's including everyone, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. You see, we who are united to Jesus through faith 
We are Christ's possession, his treasure, his inheritance. He died and rose, says Paul, to make us his own, to belong to him. And that means that those who are weak in the faith are his. And those who are strong in the faith are his. And our preferences and opinions and differences have nothing to do with our status in the body of Christ. We both serve the Lord equally, for we both belong, strong and weak, to the Lord. So then, says Paul, welcome one another graciously, because we serve the same Lord. And finally, he says, we are to graciously welcome each other, because we all give accounts to the same judge, who is God. Paul again asks, in verse 10, the question, he says, Who do, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, notice he's, he's speaking to both groups again. He's speaking to those who judge the weak in faith and those who despise the strong in faith. And he says, why do you do that? Don't do that. Welcome one another graciously because there is one judge and it is God. God shows no partiality in his judgments. He doesn't prefer one above another. He has one standard of righteousness by which he judges all and that standard is his own righteousness. And then Paul quotes from Isaiah 45, 23 says, For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. The main idea of that text there in Isaiah that Paul is citing is that there is no one else like the Lord, so he alone has the right to bring the entire panorama of human history before his righteous judgment, which means... That none of us, no matter who we are, have the right to judge others on matters of personal preference and opinion. To do so is to, to elevate ourselves to the position of God who is the righteous judge. A position we have no right to occupy. We give account to God for what we do, think, and say. And we all, both the strong and the weak, give account to that same perfect judge over all the earth. And we all, when united to Christ, are declared by that perfect judge to have met the standard of his righteousness because we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. As Paul said, the just shall live by faith. Whether it's weak faith or strong faith, the just live by faith. In other words, be graciously welcoming to each other because God has graciously welcomed you. He has accepted you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so it is the grace of God then that unites us despite our differences. And as it unites us in that unity, we have real peace, the, the cessation of conflict over doubtful things. I mean, take a look around this world and see if you can find a place, a community, where there is 
that kind of peace, I guarantee you, you will not find one. Because you'll always find some other standard that you are expected to submit to other than God's. You'll always find some sort of standard other than God's which you must measure up to if you are to be accepted in that community. Even in the so-called tolerant world of the modern era, that alleged tolerance is only granted if you completely agree with what a person feels is to be right or true or good. And in reality, that world is a selfish world. It is full of hatred and unrest and conflict upon conflict. There's no peace in that world. And there never can be because we will never measure up to each other's standards for each other as fallen sinners. But in God, in Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness. We are made part of his family, of his kingdom. He grants that we might be in his presence. And it is there that we are accepted both now and forever through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gracious welcome of Christ. And that's the gracious welcome we can extend to one another. So welcome one another in the grace of God with the same grace that he has shown you. And when we do that, we will have peace. We will have a peace that only the gospel can bring. And we will show to this world what a true welcoming church is all about. Now, it's not about trying to be alike. In fact, it's okay to be different, but it is a church that falls fully upon the mercy of God in Christ. And so let us do that. And with a warm and welcoming grace, welcome one another, for we have been welcomed into God's kingdom. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We're thankful for its truth. We ask now that you would continue to work in our hearts to show us that our righteousness is in Christ alone. And in that righteousness, we are all united, no matter where we are in our faith, whether we are weak or strong, have doubts, or we believe with great strength. Father, I pray that you would help us to encourage one another, to build one another up, to not despise one another, but to be winsome and loving and caring. And so show to this world the peace that comes through the gospel of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let us stand and give thanksgiving to God that our righteousness, our only hope, is found in Christ alone. Mm -hmm.